Art Shelves, a library podcast of the Haverford Township Free Library. My name is Mary Bear Shannon, and I am joined here today with my other reference colleagues, Mandy Falwell. Hi. Kim Christopher. Hello. And Amy Moskowitz. Hello. We are here to talk about some of the books that we've been reading for the month of March. Uh, and we're excited to tell you about those. So we're going to get started. So Mandy, why don't you start and tell us what you have been reading. Okay, I read for this month, it's called Fuzz When Nature Breaks the Law by Mary Roach. It is available in book form from the library, of course, but it is also available in the black, teal, and navy e-reader groups from the library. From the author that brought you Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, and Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, comes a new collection of scientific essays that explores the relationship between humans and animals and what kind of consequences or reactions there are when plants or animals break human laws. If you have read any books by Mary Roach, you know that she tends to couch scientific or historical events in humor and even in the contents portion of the book where one can read such chapter titles as, quote, On the Road Again, Jaywalking with the Animals, and The Terror Beans, The Legume as an Accomplice to Murder, unquote. You can see that this book strives to do the same. Mary begins in the introduction to describe the history of what happens when animals break the law, starting with what happens in June of 1659 when representatives of a northern province in Italy, quote, initiated legal proceedings against caterpillars. The local specimens, went the complaint, were trespassing and pilfering from people's gardens and orchards. The people even went so far as to nail summons to trees in the woods. No caterpillars showed up to the hearing, however, and the judge allotted them land on which to live, quote, freely and happily. Mary found this and other historical examples of cases against animals in the 1906 book entitled The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. Other than providing a source of amusement, this book really shows how the question has defied satisfactory resolution for centuries. What is the proper course when nature breaks laws intended for people? The author then describes her journey in writing the book, what she did and how she accomplished it, along with the acknowledgement that this is, quote, far from comprehensive. 2,000 species in 200 countries regularly commit acts that put them at odds with humans, unquote. This book is but an overview of a number of species and situations that Mary encountered in her two-year research period for this title. Throughout the book, the author accompanies those who are sent out to police and investigate the animals that break the laws. In Mall Cops, Crime Scene Forensics When the Killer Isn't Human, she attends a five-day program called WART, Wildlife Human Attack Response Training, which is part lecture and part field training with the Canadian Rangers. She learned how to differentiate between how different animal attacks will be shown on the damage done to the victim. In the chapter, The Gulls of St. Peter's, she goes to the Vatican to discuss with the priests how they plan on keeping seagulls from gathering and pooping on the grounds and crowds at papal events. The answer, lasers. They planned on using lasers. In the chapter entitled The Elephant in the Room, Mary goes to India to attend an elephant awareness camp. 
led by a researcher who tries to show people how to protect themselves from rampaging elephants without harming the animal. That is important because the elephant is a holy animal in India. In another essay, she travels to the Midwest to discuss how farmers handle rats getting into livestock feed. Interestingly enough, the author also goes into how often animal interference can be made worse with the efforts of those who mean to discourage it. She talks about how scarecrows can actually draw birds to fields and how the efforts to rid the island of midway birds as they kept creating problems on the runway just cleared space for more to come and breed there in the years afterwards or how efforts to relocate leopards actually make them more used to humans and therefore more likely to attack people once they are released. So really, this book is an interesting read. It is very clever in describing how people interact with animals in a number of different ways all over the world. Her narrative nonfiction style draws the reader in, making it easy to sympathize not only with the animal, who really, when it comes down to it, is just doing what animals do, living, mating, eating, having babies, but also with the people who are tasked with coming up with a solution to when animals decide to do what they do in a place where humans live. This would be a great book for anyone who loves nature and animals and anyone who likes nonfiction books that are written in a humorous way. So Mandy, did you find that a lot of the solutions ended up being that the animal died? that they were being killed? Or did you find that there were some kind of non-lethal creative ways that people handled animals who weren't doing what they wanted them to do? Well, I think that it depends on the outcome. You know, when an animal attacks a person and physically harms them in a direct way, the only answer that was given in the book is euthanasia. Because when a leopard attacks a person or a tiger or a bear mauls a person, they are more likely to do it in the future. So the training that she received was how to recognize which animal attacks so you knew which animal to hunt. Other people, like the gentleman who was trying to handle the rat infestation in his corn feed, basically just allotted a certain amount to animal loss and got cats, you know, that was basically how he handled it. And of course, as I said, at the Vatican, they used lasers to try and keep seagulls from pooping on the crowds. Other places they tried using sound. And of course, in India, they don't want to harm anything. So they tried to discourage people from building in certain areas if they were heavily traversed by cows or elephants. But if they were like predators or frankly vermin, the most common solution was just to kill them. Yeah, so uh, I'm wondering that the Thompson says, says, and going on this previous question of Mary's, that the book at the end builds this hopeful sort of view on coexistence between animals and humans, but it sounds like it's more of a humist read rather than trying to make it sort of like a book on hope about coexistence between the animal and human world. I think that there is a bit of hope in there. It seems like the people who are interacting directly with the animals are really trying to find a non-lethal way to handle them. They are trying to like breed the macaque monkeys to fix them or pulling the females out of the wild and fixing them so they can't have more babies or like trying to change the genetic structure of mice to keep them from breeding in areas where they're not wanted. So yeah, a lot of it really is just trying to adjust the animals to living with people and really trying less to change the behavior of people 
to adjust to animals because that's a really tough thing to do. So Mandy, as someone who, like yourself, enjoys walks in nature and really reveres nature, I'm curious how this book has maybe changed your perception of your relationship to animals and nature. Hmm, that's a, that's an interesting question. Let me think. Because I don't really know that it has. Okay. Um, I have always been a big believer in staying out of the way and letting animals just do their thing. And it's kind of like, I still see that in this book and I still see that in, I just, I hate seeing the way that animals and their habitats are impacted by people and I wish we could do less of that. But I do enjoy nature and I think that the more species that we hunt or log to extinction, the less rich we will be as people for that. Okay, thanks, Mandy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book that I read. This is a very hot title at the moment, and I feel like lots of people are reading it. I read Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Uh, I really like this book. It is described as an unflinching, powerful memoir about growing up Korean-American, about losing her mother, uh, Michelle's mother, and forging her own identity. The description of the book also calls the memoir an exquisite story of family, food, grief, and endurance. Zoner is not only a writer, but she is the front person for the highly successful experimental pop band Japanese Breakfast. Michelle Zoner is now in her 30s, but her memoir centers on the time in her 20s when her Korean mother was dying of terminal cancer. She talks about her growing up in Eugene, Oregon with her parents, her mother Korean and her father white. A big part of her struggle is the whole divide between her mother's culture in which she has very high expectations for her, especially her looks, looking young and conforming to her mother's standards of beauty. Her growing up in Eugene where there was really only a very few Asian American kids was especially hard, and then made harder as she moved into her adolescence and her teen years. And that relationship with her mother was especially impacted by that. One of the only places she and her mother could bond over was food. And after she left Michelle's honor, she attended Bryn Mawr, and she was able to kind of distance herself from her often tumultuous relationship with her mother. And she also began to live uh, what I would call kind of the rock and roll lifestyle she had wanted to live. But she also found that the distance from her mother gave her a distance from her Korean identity, which she found that she missed, especially when she found out that her mother had cancer. The bulk of the story is about the year she spent with her mother back in Eugene as she cared for her mother through those last few months. She also reconnects with her Korean culture, especially through food, but also language and her family history. I liked this book for a lot of reasons. One in particular is that it had a local connection here to Philadelphia. Zahner went to Bryn Mawr and her dad was from the Philly area. And she talks about going and crying at the H Mark in Elkins Park. H Mart, for those of you who don't know, is really the largest Asian supermarket chain in the country. It got its start in Queens, New York. It has a supermarket along with a food court with Korean and other Asian foods. H-Mart is short for Han A Ryum, a Korean phrase that roughly translates one arm full of groceries. 
I guess that's what they first thought would be the purpose of H-Mart. H-Mart has locations all over the country, but there are locations in Elkins Park here in Philly. And for our local listeners, many are familiar with the one at Upper Darby near 69th Street. Michelle Zahner goes to the H-Mart to cry and to mourn the death of her mother, who died in her mid-50s from cancer. Throughout the book, she uses the food she grew up eating to connect with her Korean roots and to connect with her own grief. I also enjoyed learning more about the connections she makes with her Korean culture. I have friends who are Korean-American and have watched them struggle with their own Korean identity and specifically their relationships with their Korean mothers. This book helped me to better understand those conflicts and the tension between their ties to their Korean and American culture. I also really connected with Zahner's experience of losing a parent while in her mid-20s and how hard that is. Even though she had been living on her own for a while, the experience of losing a parent at that time of your life can be devastating. My own father died of cancer at 56 when I was 26, which was really hard. It wasn't that I depended on my father for direct support at that time, but the loss of a parent at that time can have a huge impact on your development, and it did for me. For Zahner, it seemed that it was a catalyst to help her reconnect with her mother and gain a better appreciation for the things that her mother had considered important when the author was growing up. Her mother's illness was the event that instilled a deeper examination of her culture. The prime vehicle in which she did this was through food. I also came away craving Korean food (laughs) and look forward to going to one of our many local Korean restaurants in this part of Delco. And if you haven't explored those, they're really amazing, especially Korean barbecue, which is really good. I also became really curious about her band, Japanese Breakfast. I have now listened to all three of her albums that have been released since 2016. The first one, Psychopomp, was recorded during the time she was still in Eugene after her mother had died and when her husband and bandmate Peter had joined her there. As I listened to Psychopomp, I could imagine her using her music as a way to process her grief and you can definitely hear it in that music. The irony is that she talks about in this book is that uh, the success of Japanese breakfast only happened after her mother's death. She describes the serendipity of this fact and not really sure what it means, but feels that there is some connection between the two. So Crying in H Mart is available in our catalog as a book and in large print. It's also available on Libby as an ebook and an audiobook, and also on our Navy e-readers as an ebook. And if you find that many of the copies are out because it's very popular right now, consider uh, checking out one of our e-readers. Sometimes that's the fastest way to get a sought-after title like Crying in H-Mart. Mary, I'm curious what you think makes this memoir such a hot bestseller and what makes people all across the country and maybe even across the world want to read this. Well, it's interesting. I think all of us struggle with our relationships with our mother. I think as a female, we love our moms. We love their care for us. But many of us can identify with that time where our mother has said, sit up straight or cut your hair or why are you doing that? And us rolling our eyes and not realizing there's a kind of a chasm between our really our generations, but also sometimes culture. I think it also... um, I think it has some appeal because it really is kind of an immigration story. And I think that 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 story over and over again about the first generation and the second generation and the dueling goals that I think the immigrant has for their children, 
they want them to be American. They want them to live in this new place, but they also want them to hold on to elements of the culture in which they came from. And that can be really difficult for that second generation. And I think those conflicts can be really tough. And I think also there's an appeal about Michelle's honors struggle with really who am I? And often I know folks that outwardly look like they're from somewhere else get the question, you know, what are you? (laughs) Which I think is really insensitive, but I think the deeper question is her trying to answer that. All right. uh, So Mary, uh, Kim here, I'm a little curious being Korean American myself and eating Asian food as well. uh, What is it that made you exactly crave Asian food? Because I Asian, at least Korean food, can be spicy to pretty hot. Yes, I have to say that kimchi is not something that I eat on a regular basis. I really love just the savoriness of the marinades and the beef and the, that, you know, when you go to a grilled place, they're really good. And they're just flavors that I just have no idea where they came from. I mean, her descriptions were just amazing. I do have to say I do kind of shy away from the real spicy stuff, but the really flavorful stuff is is just, it just can't be beat. Now, you mentioned food a lot in this. When her mother married her father, did she modify her cooking at all? Like when the author grew up, was she eating just Korean food or was she eating an amalgamation of Korean and American food? Or what was she learning to cook and what was she learning as a comfort food? Well, it's interesting. I don't get the sense that they had too much American fare. It's funny, I, now that I think about the book, I don't think that I ever heard of an exchange between the mother and father about food. It was always the connection between Michelle's honor and her mother. Although I do think there were some things that she made. I think the majority of their diet was stuff that her mother made. I mean, she really was the cook. And I think that it's when those traditions kind of lag is when the person from the country doesn't cook. And I think Michelle Zahner really felt at a disadvantage because she saw that her mother was slipping away and her mother had never taught her any of the dishes. And she was feeling, she seemed a little panicky to learn how to do that. And her mother really just wasn't well enough. And so she ended up learning a lot of the dishes from YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) which I think is kind of interesting. Hi, everyone. This is Mandy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to March's All By Our Shelves, a library podcast. I'd like to talk about a couple of things that the library is doing in April. First, we are hosting in-person Oscar-nominated movies on Fridays in April. The next one is going to be King Richard, which is going to take place on April 1st. King Richard is a biographical drama directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green and written by Zach Balin. It follows the life of Richard Williams, the father and coach of famed tennis players Venus and Serena Williams. To register for this or any of the other Oscar-nominated movies that we are showing in person in April, just click the link accompanying this podcast or look for Friday Movie Matinee under adult events on our website, haverfordlibrary.org. Also, come celebrate National Library Week with our pop-up events as we bring the programs of the library out into the community. 
For all of the kids out there, there is a pop-up story time on April 6th at the New Avenue Cafe right next to the Kelly Center in Havertown. On April 7th, come see our pop-up library where you can browse some of the titles owned by the library and even borrow them if you want. Lastly, come join me, Mandy Falwell, your friendly neighborhood technology librarian for my new monthly program, Tech Time with a Librarian. Starting tomorrow at 7 p.m. in front of the reference desk, I will show a short presentation on how to access Libby and Hoopla and then be able to help you with other questions related to technology that you might have brought with you. So come enjoy some of our programs in April and we'll hopefully see you there. Once again, thank you very much for listening and now back to our regularly scheduled program. So anyway, moving on, Kim, why don't you tell us what you have been reading? Okay. So hi, Kim here. Uh, for this month, I read the book Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. And the story itself, it takes place in two time periods. Initially, it's starting off in the early part of the 20th century following Marion and Jamie Graves, who are, well, for a better lack of words, wild children. They live in a very rural part of Missoula, Montana. Their uncle, he doesn't care what they do. He's a painter. He's just always off painting or he's unfortunately also gambling and he just doesn't care what they do. So they're always getting into trouble, playing and all sorts of things. They don't have any parent figures in their lives because well, their name carries something of a significance or stigmata because their father he had been an ocean liner captain and there had been an accident at sea it's explained what happens later but i won't spoil that for anyone but the accident the ship was sinking and the father abandoned his post as captain to save them and even though that was a noble bold act he abandoned his post and so they sent him to jail for that so they don't have a father figure throughout their entire life and then their mother God knows where she went because she disappeared on the voyage. There's no record if she died in the sinking of the ship or if she just left them because she was something of an enigma, just very aloof. She almost didn't want to have children, but she did. And so no parents, their only parental figure, their uncle, again, doesn't care what they do. And they're always just running off playing, getting into trouble. But this all changes one day when a pair of pilots in biplanes land just in their neck of their wood, low on fuel and everything, and Marion, it's hard to put into words exactly what happens with it, but she's enamored with the idea of airplanes. She goes up with one of the biplane pilots, and it just something about it hooks her, and from that point on, she decides she wants to be a pilot. She wants to have her own plane to fly high in the sky and everything, but 1920s period, 30s prohibition time, to say the least, not as easy for her because she's a girl, and men always view her just as a female, you know, weak, incapable, especially of being a pilot. But she doesn't let that deter her. She cuts her hair. She dresses like a man, even talks like they would, and runs all sorts of odd jobs on the side to build up her money to buy her own plane one day and not have to deal with all the bullshit she's getting from all the men. But this gets weird for her because she then encounters a man by the name of Barkley McQueen. He's a bootlegger and she was just running an errand on her job, delivering something she wasn't supposed to be seen or anything, but McQueen crosses her path and he's enamored with her and he offers to give her a chance to fly, you know, give her a plane, you know, no strings attached supposedly, but she knows there are strings in the sense that he just wants her as something of a possession, a piece of property. And 
even though she is reluctant in that regard, she doesn't want to be tied down by anything, and especially she doesn't want to be a piece of property to this guy, and she knows that as a bootlegger, he's something of a dangerous man, because, yeah, there are all sorts of shady deals she sees on the side, but she accepts his offer, and this is an offer that she knows will haunt her for the rest of her life, and it does, but... Fast forward also, because this takes place in a different timeline, to the present day, 2014, Marion has become one of the most famous female aviators of the 20th century, because once she got her plane and everything, she attempted to circumnavigate the entire globe, which no one had done, but she became famous, not just because no one had attempted to do it, but she disappeared on the flight. No one knows what happened to her. Only thing left was just her logbook, which they found floating in the ocean. No sign of debris, no bodies, nothing. And so, in 2014, a movie adaptation of her life is being made, and this is where we're introduced to the actress Hadley Baxter, who's slated to play her in this movie, and Hadley, she wants this role, she wants to do this role, sort of prove to people that she's not this stupid actress, because she's done all sorts of roles where she's playing that, you know, Twilight book character just not really significant worthy of any praise or awards but she's made money off of it so she's not desperate for the money but she wants to prove to herself and everyone she can do things and also at the same time when she's examining the role because she's one of the actresses who just gets into her role studies and everything she starts to re-examine her life and get things together because she had been in numerous relationships drugs vice versa the hollywood life but Something about Marion examining her life makes her re-examine her own life, as well as, in the end, also solving the mystery of what happened to Marion Grave at the end, because, like I mentioned, they never found a body. Nothing saying that she actually died in the flight. So, <laughs> that's the plot. There's so much about the book to say uh, without trying to spoil things, because, yeah, there is... The overarching theme is the mystery of what happened to Marion Graves, because she disappeared on the flight, and so the story's showing you up until the end, again, without spoiling things for people, just what happened to her and also how Hadley is in present day unraveling something of that mystery as well. But this is a finalist for the Booker Prize, and after reading it, I've told people before that it's so good that if I had the time, no obligations, distractions, I could just read it in one sitting. Uh, it took me a couple of weeks to read it, sadly, but if I had time, I would just read it in a few hours because something about the author's writing style, her lush descriptions of things, because she's not just satisfied saying that, like, Marion goes up in the sky and flies. She describes every element to flying, you know, checking the devices, the feeling you get when you go up and go down, going to barrels and so on, and just also her brother Jamie in the story, he's an artist as well, as a result of the uncle, and descriptions of how Jamie goes through his artistic process, it feels like you're there in the room watching him paint. Yeah, there's just so much about this book to like, and it's hard to put in words again, but maybe it's the authorship says descriptions of things, or also, even the character Marion, just she's a strong, independent woman who just doesn't let anything get her down. She just destroys every barrier that gets in her way until she gets to the point that she gets her plane. So, just so much to love about this book, and I highly recommend it for anyone who's looking for a good historical fiction read. So, Kim, this book is one of our book club in a bags, and it is also a selection that we use for this month's reading around. Mm. So why do you think that this is a good choice for book clubs? 
I think personally, because there's so much going on in the book, there's so much to discuss in terms of that it's taking place in two different time periods, one that's so far removed in the early part of the 20th century that you think about the historical context, but then it goes back to the present day in 2014. And again, like I said, Shipstead, she's not just satisfied to have a simple description. She goes into depth describing things. She even has a few chapters on the history of Missoula, Montana, going back to several thousand years, even just hypothetically, that is, maybe about how this country came to be and all those things. And yeah, there's just so much about the book to talk about, the historical stuff, the characters, everything about it. <laughs> it's Again, it's hard to put into words just what makes it such a great read, but yeah. So it seems like both of these women, no matter that they lived in different times, had something to prove. What do you think was similar about what they had to prove? And do you think that what they felt like their roles were versus what they wanted stayed the same no matter what time period they lived in or if it changed with the women's liberation and things like that? Yeah, good question. Uh, Think about it here. Um, I would say that their goals remained the same in the sense that they were trying to prove to people that they could do what they were setting out to do. But, of course, it did change in terms of times because... Marion had to prove to men that she was just as capable as them, and she had to deal with all the misogynistic attitudes they were giving her, whereas Hadley, she was trying to prove to people that she could do what she could do in terms of that, like I mentioned, she had all these roles where she was playing that Twilight character, not getting any, well, she was getting recognition from her fans, but not in the regard to, you know, getting award nominations and everything. And she wanted to show people that she was capable, but also she has something of a childhood fascination with this female character that she was resonating with in regards to perhaps, again, that idea of breaking down all the barriers and proving to people that she's not just a nobody. So I definitely see some parallels with this story and the story of Amelia Earhart. And I was wondering how they reconcile the story of the real character, which is Amelia Earhart, and this made-up character. And are there enough similarities to treat this as almost like an alternate history? Or how did you read that? Yeah, that was something that was interesting to think about because she is very similar to Amelia Earhart, but at the same time, the author did include as part of the historical context of things, descriptions of everything that was happening in terms of all the various famous aviators at the time, including Amelia Earhart. And I wouldn't say it's alternate sort of history, but just someone who was inspired that Marion, one of the bi-pilots she encountered was actually female, and that in turn inspired her in the sense that she could be a pilot even though she did feel the female's arrival because she had a crush on the male pilot. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't consider it alternate history in that regard, but, yeah, something of uh, inspired by, maybe. Okay, well, thanks, Kim. And Amy, why don't you tell us what you've been reading? So I have to admit that what drew me to my latest read is that I heard it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, longlisted for the National Book Award, and written by a Pulitzer Prize winner. I figured how bad could it be? Still, Bewilderment, a novel written by Richard Powers, managed to blow me away. This book, on the surface, is about a widowed father and his nine-year-old son, and the challenges they face when the son begins acting out aggressively with his peers in school. But it is so much more than that. 
It is about loss, grief, and finding our way back to ourselves and those we love once again. Told from the father, Theo's perspective, we get a glimpse into this brilliant but grieving man's life as the novel opens upon a camping trip to the Smoky Mountains with his son, Robin. Theo is an astrobiologist keen on finding life on other planets. Robin, we soon find out, is very smart as well, but is struggling. It becomes clear to the reader that Robin is neurodivergent, but Powers cleverly never defines any concrete diagnosis for his behaviors. The behaviors include lashing out at his father and classmates and nearly being expelled for an act of violence against a peer. Robin has difficulty with impulse control, but is creative, sensitive, compassionate, and bright. I found the conversations between Theo and Robin enlightening, endearing, and very real. Their time in the mountains needed to come to an end, however, and Theo and Robin needed to face the harshness of their realities, work, school, and life without their beloved wife and mother. Things keep getting worse for Robin until an old friend of Theo's, a psychologist, insists he can help with an experimental neurofeedback machine that trains Robin to gain control of his feelings and emotions. This machine uses the recorded patterns of Robin's mother's brain. Will Theo allow his son to participate in this novice but promising experiment? If so, will it work? You'll have to read Bewilderment and find out. I think what got me hooked on Bewilderment was really a few different things. For one, the writing was spectacular. I recall at one point, someone asks Theo if Robin is on the autism spectrum. And he responds with, quote, life itself is a spectrum disorder where each of us vibrates at some unique frequency in the continuous rainbow. Oddly, there's no name in the DSM for the compulsion to diagnose people, unquote. Also, my partner and I co-parent a nine-year-old with this child's father. Helping to raise a child the same age as the child in the book made me draw unique parallels. How is she like Robin and how is she different? How would she have reacted in these situations as opposed to how Robin reacted? Though the same age, my child and Robin don't share many other similarities. However, it made the book more interesting for me to read a book about a child the same age as mine. I was eager to read about the father-son dynamic and gauge Robin's personality and interest against my little persons. Lastly, I really loved the focus on science. Though not typically a fan of sci-fi books, the idea of this neurofeedback machine which used Robin's deceased mother's brain waves in an effort to offer Robin a chance to learn how to control his emotions was fascinating to me. It kept me wanting to read more and see how it would turn out. If you are as intrigued as I was, grab a copy of Bewilderment. It is available in print form from the Haverford Township Free Library and also on one of our Nook e-readers. Just ask for one in the red group. Use our Libby app, Bewilderment is available as both an ebook and an audiobook on Libby. So read what Newsweek calls, quote, nothing short of transportative, unquote. What Washington Post calls, quote, achingly current and wise, unquote. What The Guardian calls, quote, remarkable, unquote. And what the New York Times Book Review calls, quote, extraordinary, unquote. So I know that... Richard Powers, he won the Pulitzer Prize for the overstory, so, and I know it's probably not fair to compare things, but how would you say it compares to the overstory that is his previous writings? So folks are saying that this novel isn't quite as verbose, Mm. and it's 
of course, a very different topic. It's going to be a lot different than the overstory. But I think, again, you have to take each one just at its own value. For readers of the overstory, you're going to get a very different book here. But this one is up for awards in its own sense. And I think that I may have actually preferred Bewilderment. Amy, I think a big part of this book is about grief. And it is a, a big part of our lives, not just the death of people, just the lots of things that we grieve. What do you think you learned about grief with this story? That's a good question. I think that it was fascinating to read about Power's description of grief through this father's eyes and through the son's eyes, as they were both very different in their process of grief. And I think that... What I got out of it was that it never goes away. It just changes form. And although this book took place over not a very long period of time and not super long after the mother had passed away, they were processing their grief in very different ways. And they went through various stages of grief and they were helping each other through it. So I think that having somebody there to assist with the process is really helpful. And I think that being self-aware at the same time and just knowing that it doesn't go away, but to observe the changes through the process is really important as well. Well, there you have it. This is uh, what, uh, all the things that we've read here. I Again, my name is Mary Bear Shannon, and I am joined here by Mandy Falwell and Kim Christopher and Amy Moskovitz. This has been All By Our Shelves, which is a library podcast of the Haverford Township Free Library. Thanks for joining us, and have a great day. Mm-hmm.